Church, as we continue to worship together today, I'm going to encourage you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 20. For those of you that are visiting with us this morning, we are in a series through the Ten Commandments. We come now to the Sixth Commandment. Before we dive into the Sixth Commandment, we'd be remiss to not stop into Paul's and to specifically intercede for God's protection and God's intervention in this historic, catastrophic uh, occurrence that is occurring over these last days and even right now in the Ukraine. This is not uh, hypothetical to, to our church, nor to some of you that are here. Uh, we as a church have had a, a partner ministry that, that many of our church members have been able to participate with and to be in the Ukraine since 2007. So these are people that are loved and people that have been ministered uh, alongside of, of uh, uh, members here at Dawson. And so we want to pray, and I'm going to just give you seven prayer prompts, and maybe one or two would be close to your heart. And we're just going to pause as a congregation, and we're going to intercede, and we're going to pray for God's intervention and God's protection. Uh, number one, as a prayer prompt for us, we want to pray for the safety and the protection of the Ukrainian citizens and the military personnel. I'm drawing on some really good prayer prompts from a ministry called Radical, which uh, has guided me uh, with these words for these last few days here. Number two, pray for the Ukrainian church leaders as they care for church members that are affected by this conflict. Number three, let us as a body of believers pray for thousands of displaced missionaries as they seek to minister to those who remain in harm's way, in the midst of danger. Number four, let's pray for the Ukrainian people to look to the gospel of Jesus Christ for hope during this overwhelmingly challenging time. Let's pray for the followers of Jesus to arise as messengers of his hope to the hopeless and the oppressed. Let's intercede for God to put a stop to Russian aggression and to change the very heart and plans of uh, Vladimir Putin in regard to the Ukraine. And finally, can we as a congregation pray that God would give leaders of the United States and other countries wisdom and courage as they, as we are gathering or making important decisions and certainly will in the coming days and weeks and months ahead. Let us bow and let us pray. God, we are living in, 
in a historic moment. A moment where our social media feeds and the images that we see on cable television harkens back in the surreal way to a moment in our history as a country that we have not known as a world as we have not known for over eight decades. And so we pray in this very moment for the safety and protection of the Ukrainian citizens, leaders, and their military personnel. We ask you, God, to be with the Ukrainian church leaders as they care for, love upon church members and their neighbors that are affected by this very conflict. We intercede for displaced missionaries as they seek to be salt and light to minister to those who are fleeing and those who remain in danger. We pray for the Ukrainian people to look to the gospel of Jesus Christ for hope during this challenging time, this historic time. We pray for followers of Christ to arise as messengers of hope to the hopeless and to the oppressed. We intercede boldly, asking you as the sovereign providential God to stop the Russian aggression and to change the very heart and plans of their leader in regard to the Ukraine. And we pray that God, you would give wisdom, wisdom from on high for leaders in our country and countries across this world. Give them courage, the Ukrainian leaders' wisdom and courage as they make essential and important decisions, even now as we gather to worship in the days and the weeks and the months to come. We pray this all in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Over a year ago, our worship planning team and I met together and we talked through walking through a series on the Ten Commandments in the spring. I had no idea that I would stand before you. I knew the date in which I would preach the Sixth Commandment, but I didn't know the historic nature of this date that I would ask you to turn with me to Exodus chapter 20, verse 13, and to hear the word of the Lord. The sixth commandment, this is just four words, but they're timely words. They're relevant words. They're words that speak in this moment. You shall not murder. Short, to the point, four words. In the original Hebrew Bible, two words are behind what is translated as four words in your English Bible. What has preceded the sixth commandment and commandments one through five have motivation clauses, promises that attach to them. Uh, they have sentences behind many of those commandments. But, but here in commandments six, seven, eight, nine, and ten, we get to the heart of what it is to live horizontally as a neighbor, to love one another. And it is clear to see you shall not murder. I love the King James Version of the Bible. Many passages of Scripture, when I, when I begin to quote them, they, uh, they, they flow out of the King James. Passages like the 23rd Psalm, I know in, in no other way than the King James Version. But there has been some confusion, and there has been some uh, misunderstanding of exactly what this commandment means when it was translated in the 17th century, you shall not kill. And it's really not the, the issue of the translators because we're dealing with one of the challenges of taking an ancient language and putting it into another language, our language, English. There are at least eight words in the Hebrew language that could be translated kill. 
at least eight words that could be translated kill or murder. I think it's important for you as we try to see clearly in Scripture what is God prohibiting here to know that this word that is used here that is translated in the English Standard Version, you should not murder, translated in the King James Version, you should not kill, is a word that is never used in the killing of another soldier in military engagement. It is a word that is never used in reference to the legal system, the legal system or even forms of capital punishment is not used. This word that we have in the original Hebrew here is a word that is not used when it comes to the hunting and the killing of animals for food. It's not used. And then you say, well, what does this word mean here? David, you're telling me a a lot of ways that it's not used. You get a little bit closer to it when you have the English Standard Version that says you shall not murder. But even that word here doesn't give us the full orbed understanding of this word here in Hebrew. Because you notice this same word is used in wrongful deaths, in what we would uh, determine and and uh, call uh, involuntary manslaughter, or voluntary manslaughter, even accidental deaths, even unintentional. There's scenarios within the Old Testament where this word is used. So what is the commandment forbidding? What is the prohibition here? The best way to understand this commandment is that God calls us to not unjustly take innocent life. That the sixth commandment is a commandment that prohibits the unjust taking of innocent life. Well, why would that be the case? Again, we have just four words in the English, just two words in the Hebrew, but there is a, a, a whole theology that is, that is right behind uh, you shall not murder. And it is found in Genesis chapter 1, in Genesis chapter 2, in Genesis chapter 9. Just listen to, to post Cain and Abel when the dignity of human life is brought before us in God's word in the first few uh, pages of the Bible. Genesis chapter 9 verse 6 says, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. We're commanded not to unjustly take innocent life. Why? Because all human life is valuable. All human life is stamped with the indelible imprint of the signature of his or her creator. Every person who walks this earth, has walked this earth, will walk this earth, breathes life, is ultimately breathed by God and his signature, regardless of ethnicity, regardless of nationality, regardless of religious uh, adherence or a lack of religious adherence. Every person has the signature of their creator upon them. They're valuable in God's sight. If this afternoon you're going around some of the different uh, communities of the Birmingham metro area, you might find your way into an art gallery and you're looking at the different uh, paintings in that gallery and how do you differentiate uh, one from the other? One way to do that is to see the different painters. How do you know that? Where you, you look into the corner of the painting to see the signature of the artist. And every, every man and every woman here in the sanctuary, every male, every female, every child, has the indelible signature of their creator that is stamped upon them. And every human is valuable and has dignity, a dignity that is bestowed upon them, not by their effort, not by their allegiance to him, 
Not by where they were born, but rather by being born in the very image of God, in the likeness of God. That's why this commandment is a commandment that speaks to the unborn. And it speaks to the elderly. It, it, it speaks from conception to the grave. This commandment, uh, it intersects with some of the most hot topics of our day. Controversial, personal This commandment intersects with, be it abortion, be it euthanasia, be it suicide. There is the value to the unborn life. Why? Because the signature of the creator is stamped upon that unborn child in the womb. The psalmist would say it this way, describing the signature of the creator In Psalm 139, for you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you. When I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. The unborn are precious in the sight of God, and their life is of incalculable uh, value. Why is that value? Because the signature of their creator is stamped upon them. Every life is precious, but it's a life that is precious not just in the maternity ward, but what is true of the unborn is, is true of all of God's children. So there is value because there is the signature that is stamped upon every human, whether they are marginalized or oppressed, whether they're diseased or disabled or disadvantaged, all are made in the image and the likeness of God. So every life is precious in the sight of God. So we grieve. We grieve suicide. We grieve abortion. We grieve euthanasia. Why? Because ultimately defaces and and demeans the very signature of the creator that is stamped upon his beloved creation. But you say, David, I've read the Bible. I've read the Old Testament. I've read the New Testament. And death abounds in the Bible. So how do we make sense of times where God permits and even calls the people of God to take human life? Now, how do we understand this? Well, one, we were reminded we don't live in the Garden of Eden. We live in a fallen world. All you have to do is turn on your television, uh, uh, scroll down your social media feed, and you see that at times there's the protection of human beings that justifies the taking of a human life. This moves us not only to consider the dignity of human life, but the protection of human life. The Christian church over 2,000 years I thought carefully about the Word of God and how it intersects this fallen world in which we live in. And there are two examples that many Christians throughout much of Christian history have been able to agree upon. This doesn't mean every Christian at every moment in Christian history. But many Christians have reflected upon the sixth commandment in the whole counsel of God and said that there is, a, there is the protection of human life because every life is valuable, that there could be times where in self-defense of one's individual life or one's family from a, a, a violent attacker, that the taking of a human life in self-defense could be justified to protect innocent life. Now, if you extend this principle 
And you multiply this principle from an individual in self-defense, and then you begin to see just how relevant the sixth commandment is to the very day that we live in right now. Because there can be the self-defense not only of an individual, but a city. Not only a city, but a community. Not only a community, but a state or a nation. And so the Christian church has reflected upon this. In the 5th century, you have this magisterial work by St. Augustine, and a bishop in North Africa, reflecting upon the very sacking of Rome and trying to make sense of, of when it is called upon by God to defend the innocent life through the taking of life. And he coins a phrase that has been immensely influential throughout all of Christian history, which is that two-word phrase, just war. And Augustine's not the only one that has reflected upon this, but he starts us down this road talking about, and, and, and listen to his words. It's amazing how relevant that 1,500 years ago would be to our day right now. He says that in the case of a country being occupied by a, another force, an outside force, war may be the only way to restore justice and to protect the innocent. Well, is Augustine just fishing for this in his time and place? Or is there actually a, a biblical rationale to this? And the answer is yes. Augustine's in conversation with one of the most important passages of Scripture in the New Testament about this very topic where Paul reflects in Romans chapter 13 about the very uh, role of, of the government to, to fight for justice and to protect the innocent. In chapter 13, 13 verses 3 through 4 we read for rulers are not a terror to good conduct but to bad would you have no fear of the one who is in authority then do what is good and you will receive his approval for he is God's servant for your good but if you do wrong be afraid for he does not bear the sword in vain for he's the servant of God an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer this is an important passage for Christians throughout the ages because it is a passage that speaks to the response against violence, to stop violence. That at times individuals and even nations, they don't quickly resort to violence. But they would protect the peace and punish wickedness for the greater good of protecting innocent human life. That if they sit back and do nothing, there will be a travesty. A travesty of horrendous proportions. In the city of God and throughout the centuries, Christians have thought about four, four ways that just war could be justified. Four ways to reflect upon this. Number one is war is just only if it's waged by a legitimate government. Number two, it's for a worthy cause. Number three, the, the force is proportional to the attack. So war is just only if it's waged by a legitimate government. It's for a worthy cause. It is with force proportional to the attack. And number five, it's waged against soldiers with, uh, and, and not civilians. And you say, well, David, I mean, this is all great. I mean, we're thinking historically. We're thinking theologically. We're trying to think biblically in a way because we understand we don't live in the Garden of Eden. We can turn on our television and understand that history has been ripe. With times where Christians in, in good conscience have, have taken up arms to defend the innocent. But how does this intersect my life and your life? There's some of you here that say, hey, listen, 
I, I came in, I got a program, I looked at the passage, I turned in my Bible and realized that the sixth commandment is what was going to be preached on. And I said, check. I don't need this sermon. There's some of us that look at the sixth commandment and say, hey, if I don't murder my neighbor, if I can get through life without strangling my husband, if I don't live out sort of a version of, of clue and have a candlestick or a knife or a rope and, and murder someone in the library or the study, we play clue a lot at the Eldridge household here, then I'm good. We can get to lunch early here. Check it off. Let's go. But I'm here to remind you, you do not have to lift a finger to break the spirit of this commandment. You, my friend, do not have to plot someone's untimely demise to break this commandment. You say, I'm not a murderer. But it is the spirit of murder reside in your heart or my heart. You see, Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, would take this sixth commandment and he would get to the heart of the commandment. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 21, he says, You have heard that it was said of those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, You fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So I ask you, not first and foremost, are you guilty of physical murder, but I ask you, do you know the heart of this commandment that speaks to the very dark recesses of all of our souls here? Now you say, well, David, there is a righteous anger. I've read the New Testament, David. Jesus turns over the tables as the Jewish people had taken what is to be a house of prayer and they've made it for their own exploitation and their own economic gain. So there's times where we should be angry. And the answer to that is yes. I mean, even the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26 would say, be angry and sin not. So yeah, there are some things we should be angry about. When injustice reigns, we should be angry about it. We, we, we should not be like that familiar parable of the Levite and the priest who, who see a person who is beaten and broken and left for dead on the side of the road. And we, we walk past, unconcerned with their good, not willing to get in the mess and the dirtiness of hurt and pain. Yet there are some things that should make us angry. But righteous anger probably is not the issue for most of us here. Most of us here probably don't need to hear hours and hours of sermon on how you can bottle your righteous anger for good. That is important. But what are you going to do with the unrighteous, unrighteous anger in your heart? What am I going to do with the unrighteous anger in my heart? You see, if we delve deeper into this commandment here, we begin to ask very penetrating kind of questions. Am I guilty of murder? Maybe not physically. But the spirit of murder? Do you lash out? When you let your guard down? When there's no one around? 
And you allow the frustration and anger and rage and even malice to just spill out to those that are closest to you and that you love the most. Have you ever been there? Do you find yourself ever putting people down behind their backs, whispering behind their backs, uh, breeding doubt and suspicion so others would think less of someone? Do you ever find yourself uh, plotting sort of a a secret satisfaction in, in someone else's misfortune? Do you, ever, do you ever sort of find an inner glee when people don't do well that you would call your enemy or someone that has maybe hurt you? Do you know what it is to think about how you could make someone pay back what they've done to you? Do you know what it is to be so angry that you can't hold it in, that it just comes forth out of rage and malice and strife? And as much as you want to pull it back in, it's inside of your heart and it just spills out? And here Jesus says that we can break the sixth commandment without even raising a finger. You can break the sixth commandment sitting in your pew this morning. What do we do with the anger that grips every one of us that's here? You see, this is the thing about this commandment. We we think of this commandment and we think, well, hey, if I don't have sort of a a real external anger kind of issue here, I don't have to go to anger management classes and I'm, I'm good. But you understand that there can be this anger, this a silent rage that you're able to cover up in public and maybe even private, but there inside of you, it just boils over what do you do with the anger that is inside where do we take this to who can help us with this kind of anger because every one of us in this sanctuary whether we're we're external or we're internal we know what it is to be acquainted with sinful anger so what is our hope as those who are guilty and here's our hope it's a person it's a person who walked this earth who has been tempted to murder of the heart but he was without sin Here's your hope, the perfect, innocent one who felt the vicious anger of the human heart as he was oppressed and he was afflicted. He was led to the lamb as a slaughter and even on the cross, you know what he did? He prayed for his executioners. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And our hope is found in nothing less than Jesus Christ and his righteousness. Our hope and the hope for every person who commits the murder of the heart is found in the murder of the innocent one, Jesus. Jesus was murdered to forgive us murderers in thought and maybe even in action. Followers of him, we receive his grace, we receive his forgiveness, but but more than receiving his forgiveness, we seek as followers of him that have been forgiven not to say, how close can we get to the edge of this commandment without going over it? But we are propelled as those who have been saved and those who have received what we do not deserve. We're propelled as followers of him to show what selfless love to family and to neighbors. We're propelled to live out of the sixth commandment saying to ourselves, not how can I not break this, but rather how can I live as one who values life? How can I live as one who values neighbor? How can I live as one who sacrificially and selflessly loves those that God has called me to intersect with? 
Just yesterday, I was reading the testimony of a Ukrainian pastor who was chosen with his family and many of his church members to remain there in the capital of Kiev. And he writes these words that I want you to hear that are stirring words to me, and I think they will be stirring to you. He, he writes, we've, desi- we've decided to stay, both as a family and as a church. When this is over, the citizens of Kiev will remember how Christians have responded in their time of need during this critical moment. Our church is not just a place of worship, but also a place of service. We've recently conducted several trainings on performing, performing first aid. People are learning how to apply a tourniquet, stop bleeding, apply bandages, and manage airways. If necessary, the church premises can be turned into a shelter. We're ready to deploy a heating station as well as provide a place for a, a military hospital. We've even gathered information on who in the church are doctors and who has wells in the case of a water shortage And while the church may not fight, he says, like the nation, we still believe we have a role to play in the struggle. We will shelter the weak, serve the suffering, and mend the broken. And as we do, we will offer the unshakable hope of Christ and his gospel. While we may feel helpless in the face of such a crisis, we can pray like Esther Ukraine, he says, is not God's covenant people, but like Israel, our hope is that the Lord will remove the danger as he did for his ancient people. And as we stay, we pray the church in Ukraine will faithfully trust the Lord and serve our neighbors. The word of this pastor in the midst of harm's way is a word of courage, hope, and sacrificial love. And if we have ears to hear, it is the word of the Lord of a church living out the sixth commandment, even in the midst of perilous war and terror. Even right now, we can imagine, as you've seen on cell phone video footage of Christians all across the Ukraine in makeshift bomb shelters, train stations, basements, on their knees, hearing the sirens behind them, but with a chorus of praise to him. And what could be our response in the midst of what is unthinkable and so surreal to be able to see right here in Birmingham, Alabama in 2022, as they are on their knees praying for God's intervention and protection, would it be so that we too would join them on our knees praying for divine intervention and divine protection? I know not everyone is going to be able to do this, but I want to give you an invitation this morning to conclude our time in his word on our knees in solidarity with brothers and sisters in this world who are going through hellish circumstances and are standing strong and courageous to love sacrificially and love selflessly. There's some of you that would go to the side of your pews to the aisles and maybe you would drop on bended knee and your heart would match your posture. Maybe you would turn sideways in front of your pew. But as you are able and if you are able, could we as a church in solidarity with brothers and sisters in Ukraine pray for intervention of God 
and God's protection even now. Let us pray.